Hello, and welcome to another episode of the Being a Fan of Disney podcast. I'm your host, Cody Haver. In this episode, we talk to Dr. Carissa Baker of the University of Central Florida about her research into theme parks, theming storytelling, and what theme parks mean to fans. It was a great conversation between the two of us talking about the different ways that fans and consumers react to theming and theme parks. Um, And I learned a tremendous amount about fandom surrounding theme parks and themed entertainment. So I hope you enjoy the episode and please come along with us on our adventure. All right. Welcome, students. Today, we have Dr. Carissa Baker with us, um, who has been generous enough to visit with us about um, her background. And she is an assistant professor who studies theme park and entertainment management um, at the University of Central Florida. Um, And so she's joined us today. She's going to give us a little bit of her background. um, And then uh, we will have a conversation about. Um, what she has seen from the research on theme parks and theme park fandom, um, and then kind of have a back and forth of um, some things that maybe um, will or have changed and maybe will be lasting changes uh, from the current COVID-19 pandemic situation. So with that, um, Carissa, I will turn it over to you. and. Um, for an introduction and background. Thank you for joining us. Thank you for inviting me. I'm excited to talk to your class. So hi, everyone. Um, I actually want to start at the beginning because it's very uh, appropriate for this particular class, okay? So um, I don't know, do you guys um, go over in class the concept of the ACA fan? We don't. Okay, We haven't haven't yet, at least. Gotcha. So this is kind of somebody who's a scholar, but who also kind of self-identifies as a fan. And this has kind of been um, an important label maybe over the years because um, traditionally the idea of fandom or the, the subject of fandom has not always been respected, right, by the academic community. So I start there because I am not actually an ACA fan. I am a fan scholar, as in my starting spot was actually being a fan. So I was a Disney fan when I was young, and I grew up in Los Angeles, so not too far away from Disneyland. And it was my fandom and my kind of excitement for for Disney products, as well as I grew up near Universal, that made me really want to work in theme parks. So my my kind of second spot um, was working at theme parks. My very first job when I was still um, just about to graduate high school was actually Universal Studios Hollywood. So that was my first job. And then um, I moved down to Orange County and, you know, went to college there and um, absolutely worked at Disneyland my entire undergraduate years. So that was kind of where I went next. Um, I got my bachelor's degree in English and I was really particularly interested even in my undergraduate years in storytelling and narrative. And so that's why English kind of made sense at, at the time. Um, I wanted to teach it at the college level, so then I had to figure out where should I go for that, and I made a very, um, certainly to everyone in our family, very strange move to move from Southern California all the way over to Central Florida, Orlando. Um, I 
at that point worked at Magic Kingdom, Islands of Adventure, and Universal Studios. So even in graduate school, I stayed working in the theme parks, which I, I, you know, to this day, I find very valuable experience seeing it kind of from the employee perspective. And then in graduate school is when I really started looking at theme parks from that that scholar perspective. So I'd kind of say that's the movement there. I was a fan and then I was an employee and then I became a scholar. So I got my master's degree also in English. And that's when I started seeing theme parks as a, a, a text, I guess a text in the academic sense. You know, I can analyze theme parks. I can look at theme parks um, in different and interesting ways. Um, and then my PhD was in a definitely um, pretty unknown thing called text and technology. Some students may have heard of it with digital humanities or something that that's occasionally a, a phrase tossed around, but essentially it's just looking at technologies and then kind of applying humanities concepts to them. And so the technology that I really focused on, of course, was the theme park. And so the uh, all of my um, PhD studies were about the stories and the technologies used to tell stories in the theme park space. So that was, you know, my dissertation was on that as well. Um, so throughout that time, I was teaching at a two-year college, and I actually created an entire class on Disney. So it was called Disney History, Culture, and Influence, and fandom was something that we covered um, in that class. And then finally, um, I got this position at the University of Central Florida. We have a theme park and attraction management program. And so now I teach classes from that perspective as well, which is the guest experience, the kind of history of theme parks, how theme parks develop, and kind of from the, the management side. And then I also do a couple of courses in our themed experience design program, which is a master's level program, essentially for people who want to be on the creative side of designing theme parks. So that's kind of my 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 journey. Yeah, that's that is fascinating, and the the um, the, the concept of the 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 ACO fan um, is very interesting. I, I I hadn't come across that yet. Um, so <clears throat> a few a few things about what we do in this class is um, you talked about kind of you being a fan and then um, working in the parks or working in the industry and then becoming a scholar of it. Um, it was the, the genesis of this class really was um, I started incorporating Disney into my marketing classes that I would teach. Um, and we started looking at all the different ways that Disney engages with its customers and its customer base and all the things that sport organizations can learn from it. And through that, um, I kind of grew a reputation in our program about, you know, if you want to ask him about Disney, ask him, but set a time limit because it's, it, it could go a really <laughs> long time. Um, and so then one of my colleagues actually suggested, why don't you teach a class on this? And so this is, that was the genesis of this um, this forum class, and then so we come at it from the fandom perspective. What it means to be a fan of something, and we look at we use Disney um, because that's what that's what I know more. That's what we talk more about, um, and I think students are able to talk more about it. Um, and so we talk about a little bit of the history, um, some of the acquisitions 
that the company has made. We talked about the movies, uh, both by the company and fan-made movies. Um, and then we, we spend about a quarter of the class talking about the theme parks. Um, and so in, from, your, in, from your perspective as an instructor, um, what are some of the interesting kind of stories you have of how, how, how successful theme parks are run um, and how Disney has kind of become the, the brand that people think of when they think about theme parks and entertainment? Oh, so we have a few hours, right? <laughs> <laughs> um, I, I love that question. And I should say just for kind of context here that I am, you know, absolutely Disney fan, a Disney parks fan, but I'm also a theme park fan. And so um, in that role, and I guess that this is being recorded, so now all your students are going to know, um, I have been to uh, well over 100 theme parks around the world, so uh, including all of the Disney parks, um, yeah. all 12 of them. So I am a big theme park fan. Um, if you look at... Um, Every year, the you know global attractions attendance report, you see that Disney is clearly doing something right. So um, they actually only have 12 parks, um, whereas there are some companies on there that have you know 20, even one that's pretty close to get to 40 parks. Okay, one of the the Chinese companies, which actually is is quite a good company as well. But there's something about the Disney parks, right? Um, and I think there's a couple of things I can think of right off the top of my head. One being, um, we love the stories that Disney tells. It's just something that's, you know, been around for a long time. And then the second thing I think of is just their history, right? So two things with their history. One, um, you know, it's certainly arguable about whether they had the first theme park. I would say my, my, uh, historical research shows that it's not the first park to include a theme, but there was something about that Disneyland that was really, really powerful for guests at the time. And part of it was this kind of synergistic tie-in with other business units, you know, the, the television shows people love, the movies people love, tying those things all together. And I would say absolutely Disney still does that, right? But I would also say the second part, when you're looking at history, is that they remember their history. I always used to start this discussion of history in my Disney class by asking them, who's the founder of Universal? Well, if you know a lot about movies, you've probably heard of Lemley, right? I mean, he's a pretty well-known figure. None of my students have heard of him, right? Um, who is the founder of Six Flags? You know, who's that? And these are great companies, right? But Disney preserves their history, right? So they kind of, uh, I would say, interweave their own company history with that of your history, your personal history of going to the park. And then, of course, there's most theme parks have this kind of component of intergenerational. You know, I took my kids there and then my kids will take their kids there and that kind of thing. Uh, but Disney really plays on that, right? Um, memories that you can weave together. And, and you know, who started Walt Disney World because his name's right there and you know his his statue is right there in front of the castle and so on and so forth. And you know what what's so interesting about Disney is like what you talked about how they tell the story and how they keep people engaged. I was listening to something um yesterday actually um a podcast um 
uh, well, it was Lee Wangela's podcast where he was talking to um, a former Imagineer who said, as far as theming, um, people want to people want to portray, portray um, kind of th this image of themselves that they want to. That's why that's why people play games. That's why people um even like on social media they, they're portraying who they want to be and so this conversation was talking about you know if if you if you want to quote unquote live in the movies if you want to pretend as you're a superhero or pretend that you are a pirate or whatever a, a um a heroine whatever it may be that the new themed lands that are being built, not just by Disney, but other companies as well, um, really get after that emotion and allow people to do that. Um, and, you know, one of the things that um, has been so important about Disney is for a long time, they've, they've allowed that to happen. Like, with their, you know, with their, with their parks, you would go to their parks and uh, you would ride through the movies. Um, you know, the, the Jungle Book was, was even um, featured after their, their real life adventures. Um, and so it would put you in the stories um, to allow you to kind of quote unquote live in that space. That is something that, um, you know, a lot of people talk about um kind of in the periphery or they talk about um somewhat in theory but that's something that you have studied you have written about um so can you tell us more about that idea of living in the theme and why that's so important for people Oh, I, I love that question, too, because um, Texan Technology, um, which is, again, a really non-traditional kind of humanities program, and one of the kind of key concepts in that program is the idea that each medium of entertainment has something different about it, an affordance, we would call it, um, that makes it excellent. So I'm, you know, I have two degrees that's focused on literature, so I love literature, and the kind of depth of detail is, is amazing when you read a book, you watch a, a film and you have that beautiful visual detail right it's it's just something that's you know it's not as verbal but it's it's very visual and you can you can see these spaces come to life um, I'm also a fan of video games and so video games you have the kind of interactive features right you're playing a role um, I, I really like role-playing games so I, I say that and I can play for hours in the role of this fantasy character but the kind of medium affordance that I think about when I think about theme parks is space right it's physical space Space. I am walking inside of this world and Wizarding World of Harry Potter, I should say, um, is something that really kind of even raised the bar on this concept, right? So you're no longer just going on a ride about Harry Potter, you're walking through Hogsmeade or Diagon Alley, you're actually, you know, tasting butterbeer, you know, you're, you're physically walking through the same space, you're holding a wand, you're interacting with the environment. So this is really, really important. And I would say if you look at the history of theme parks, um, this idea of 
the immersion is is the current paradigm we're in and and i think this is why especially disney and universal are spending so much money because they know that this is now what guests are are getting more used to and that they're going to they're going to want this kind of experience. Um, the other thing I want students to think about is we didn't used to live in a world where you could watch 3D at home. Um, we didn't used to live in a world where you could just put on a virtual reality headset in your own home, right? Um, you can play a video game with virtual reality. Um, what about drones can you buy a drone in your own home now absolutely right and um, even projection mapping I mean there are some people who are really into Halloween who do projection maps on their own homes right so what is the theme park company going to do to elevate the experience to make it different from your home and that is the thing that they truly might have above some of those those home installations right is you can walk in that space, you can smell it, you can taste it, you can hear it, you are in that story world. And I think people are just, as a whole, and I'm sure you're going to say the same thing with all your fan work, they want to participate. They they don't really want to be as passive as I think we, we used to see that experience. Well, and you're definitely correct with um, what you said about people wanting to engage and people wanting to be part of something. Um, I mean, one thing we have spent time talking about recently is uh, with all of the sports that have are now returning um, and two being held at Disney World um, to, to some, it, what seems like pretty great success as far as um, the viewership and also as far as things like logistics and safety and things like that. Uh, Major League Soccer is about to finish their tournament next week. And, you know, the NBA reportedly has not um, found a, a positive COVID-19 test since the players have been there, um, which is almost three, maybe almost four months now or four weeks. now. sorry. And so, you know, we've talked about this idea of, well, what happens in sport when people, when fans aren't at the games? And when someone watches on television, they like watching, um, they will watch a game longer if it looks like people are having fun at those games. Um, now that fans aren't at the games, what's keeping people watching? And so, you know, the various leagues have come up with some very interesting ways of keeping people engaged and having virtual fans and, and card cutout fans yeah and yeah i've seen some uh, major league baseball games now where yeah. everyone behind them is a cardboard cutout of yeah. some real fan <laughs> and it's it, you know it, it's what, what i what i've talked to people about is now and right now is when you so to speak earn your money um now is when the creative juices have to be shown and what you know how are you going to handle all of these situations um, and so it is, you know, people want to engage. And from, it, it seems as though Disney does such a great job of doing that. And Universal does, Universal does such a great job at allowing people to live in those spaces and to engage, engage with the characters. I mean, um, so that brings me to one of the newer properties. Uh, or one of the newer lands um, at Walt Disney World, um, Star Wars Galaxy's Edge. 
Um, and I've been there once. Um, I, it, it was amazing. I grew up a Star Wars fan. It was amazing to walk through. Uh, we didn't spend much time in there because um, the age of my sons, we spent most of our time in Toy Story Land, um, which is amazing as well. Um, such a neat themed area as far as like Andy's backyard and all of that. But um, can you can you tell us a little bit about how the the success of Galaxy's Edge, the success of Toy Story Land as well, and kind of from your perspective, what have you been hearing from fans and attendees to those lands? What do they like about it? What are some of the way, and what are some of the ways that um, you see the engagement continuing and improving for people in the future? Mm-hmm. Um, so, uh, Star Wars Galaxy's Edge is amazing, and um, right now is not very crowded compared to normal. So, I've been <laughs> enjoying visiting. I must say. So, um, did you get a chance to go on Rise of the Resistance? I was there before Rise of the Resistance. We went, we, uh, because we were kind of limited with time, um, we did the, the, what was it, single rider line for uh, Smuggler's Run. So we didn't go through the whole queue area and everything um, because we needed to get over to, to a different land pretty quick. Um, but I, I've heard amazing things about, I mean, Smuggler's Run is an amazing ride. I've heard amazing things about rise of the resistance and that kind of being the future of things Um, that's probably where you were going yeah that's exactly where i was going so um i mean i think all of the most recent themed lands have been pretty incredible i mean pandora like i said wizarding world of harry potter toy story land like you said but there's something special about star wars galaxy's edge for a few reasons one of them is just you know the the kind of diversity of attractions they have a you know quick service restaurant um they have kind of a sit sit down restaurant and bar um they have a, a lightsaber building experience which is you know on hold due to covid right now but we can hope at some point um we'll be back um some kind of a little bit of entertainment where you walk around you might see some characters and things like that um and then a really good simulator ride in smugglers run and then rise of resistance and i can truly tell you and and the students it's so worth checking out because it is it's kind of this pinnacle i would say of attraction design i mean it's it's incredible and i don't want to give too much away but on the other hand it it's just the level of immersion I think. So we're talking about being in the story. You know, you have this role in the story. Um, There's multiple ride systems going on. Um, Just a lot of, um, you know, animatronics and sound effects and media effects and things like that. And so it's, it's truly amazing um, in terms of that. So I think that's probably the, the highlight of that land. And I think that there, this is almost a good thing and a bad thing. The good thing being um, now you're really just getting a guest experience that, I mean, if we're being honest, Walt Disney never could have imagined, right? I, he couldn't have never imagined an experience this high tech and um, so many different senses and, and level of immersion going on. But the negative may end up being, where do we go from there? <laughs> I mean, it's it's such a great attraction that it makes you wonder, 
how's Universal going to one-up that, right? Because there's been this, like you're probably going to talk about this idea of the, the rivalry between the two, um, this healthy competition that they have. But where do you go um, at this point? Because it's, it's, it's an, a magnificent attraction. But the other thing that I would say, which fascinates me, and I, I don't know how much you know about this, but I love this idea of transmedia storytelling and this idea of taking the same story and, um, or, or maybe even separating different aspects of the story into different media, so movies and television shows and novels and, and theme park lands. I love the Galaxy's Edge transmedia. So they, they came out with two novels as well as a comic book. And I absolutely loved the kind of world building in those novels and, and in the comic book because I could kind of look at them before I went. And so when I walk around the land, I feel that, you know, as a fan who's done the dig, dig deep kind of thing, I can walk around and I know what those things are. I know who those characters are. So that's, that was pretty exciting. The other layer that is probably maybe more well-known is their um, Star Wars Datapad interactive game. So I just um, published a paper on that, actually. And it's just interesting because, again, for that Star Wars fan, and I'm a total Star Wars fan and, you know, love everything, including Clone Wars, Rebels, and Mandalorian. So I'm all about Star Wars. I have a lot of the Star Wars novels. For me, being able to play a role and I'm, you know, hacking first order things and I'm stealing things from the first order and, you know, helping the the resistance, um, you know, take over a base and things like that. It's It's pretty fun and pretty exciting that, again, a regular guest doesn't necessarily need to do those things, but a fan coming in can do that deeper dive. And I'm really glad you brought that up because, like, um, for example, when we were there, I told you I, we were needing to be more quick um, getting through the land, um, partially because the age of uh, the first time we walked in, my boys were afraid of uh, the stormtroopers. We had stormtroopers walk up to us, and that that was kind of <laughs> that was that was the end of it. So we had to get we had to get through there quick, take a picture of the Millennium Falcon, and get away. You know. And then later in the day, we went to Oga's Cantina, and they really, really liked that atmosphere. Um, and, you know, you talk about the, the, the storytelling using different mediums. Um, I recently um, have consumed much more of the MCU than the Marvel Cinematic Universe than, than the Star Wars universe, and had sort of grown... Um, little bit complacent with the star wars universe and it was um going to star wars galaxy's edge i thought hey this is really neat you know this is this is cool to see um it was really the mandalorian that kind of brought me back into everything and then um after watching the mandalorian series <clears throat> excuse me <clears throat> sorry and um then i i i listened to the two books um about Galaxy's Edge and just found those so fantastic. And by the way, if you've never listened to the audiobook, it is it is um it's different from other audiobooks where they they actually use the backgrounds and everything. They have music through the whole thing. So it's more of a theatrical production. Oh, exciting. Um, and it's really really neat. Um so I, I I have said the next time that I go back, I will be much more engaged with 
galaxy's edge because I will know the characters that were, are walking around there. And I will know kind of what people have done in these novels and sort of the backstory when I go to um, different portions of the land. Um, and so it is this truly immersive action. Um, and, you know, I, is the, the next place that people, the next place that theme parks have to go, um, does everybody have to build a, a hotel attached to the new land? Like, the, you know, the, the Star Wars Star Cruiser that they're building? I mean, it, you know, the, it is fascinating to kind of try to see the future of all this. So, one before we transition to something else, um, pre-COVID-19, where do you think the future of theme park and themed entertainment was going, possibly still is going, but before everything hit with COVID-19? Um, well, I, yeah, I think even now we're still looking at greater levels of immersion. And, and by the way, just to one point about what you just said about the Star Cruiser, I feel that that's a hotel that's being essentially just built for fans so that's kind of exciting right they're they're really starting to see this is a market that we can we can tap but um looking at the future of theme parks i mean right now at least immersion is the name of the game um greater experiences that that put you in a story and i really think that this is bleeding over as well into amusement parks so i have just seen so many higher levels of you know a roller coaster with a queue that has a clear story uh, theme music that was written for that roller coaster. So this has kind of become pervasive, I would say, in the industry. The other thing that's really becoming, um, I, or you're seeing more elements of it, is this idea of immersive theater, role-playing, interaction. Um, and probably I would say the best example I've seen of that is the Ghost Town Alive experience over at Knott's Berry Farm in, in Southern California. And so this is kind of this large scale story and the, the guests can, can choose, I guess, how much they want to involve themselves in the story is somewhat the same as, as Star Wars Galaxy's Edge, but it's even larger narrative in that they could just sit back and, and watch one of the little shows if they wanted. They could kind of engage on a, on a medium level by being sworn in as a citizen of the town that they have there, uh, casting a vote for mayor, that kind of thing. Um, or they can go all the way. They can cosplay. They can create their own character and, and really become part of the fabric of that park's narrative. And then it's really interesting because the guests get to change the narrative each day. So the, the votes that get cast really determine who the mayor of the town is and things like that. Um, and if you've heard of Evermore Park in Utah, it's really small park, but it's the same kind of thing. Essentially, the whole park is a, is a giant role-playing experience and is, is kind of really catered to those guests who, who want to really be involved. Um, if you've seen all the uh, things that the next-gen technology is doing at, at Disney, where you go on a ride and suddenly your name is being projected mm -hmm. there. I just saw this the other day. It was um, It's a Small World, Rock and Roller Coaster, um, Expedition Everest, and Star Tours. And I guess it's just because the park wasn't as crowded as normal, but my name was on all of those rides. And I'm just like, okay, this is getting a little weird. But, you know, they're following me, right? But it was kind of cool, right? Because it's, again, um, it's customizing the experience of each guest. And I... 
I'm maybe going to argue that COVID could lead us to even more of that, especially because you're now going to have more smaller groups, at least for the time being, of guests and, and, and hopefully not the, the large crowds for a while. And so I can see that kind of customized, personalized experience uh, being, being something we continue to see. Yeah, that's very interesting. That, that would be very interesting to, to experience more of that. Um, so to, to transition a little bit to, um, and really the, a, a lot of these questions come from, or this set of questions sort of comes from um, like Magic Kingdom and Epcot and some of the, the properties in Orlando or at Walt Disney World that have um, kind of that nostalgic um, atmosphere. Um, there's really there's really two things um, that I, I want to get your views on. Um, what place or what in level of importance does nostalgia play in people returning to the parks? Um, and you meant you briefly mentioned it earlier, um, but also this I, I don't I'm not sure a lot of people know kind of the science behind how Disney and other um, companies use the five senses to engage people and work on nostalgia, things like uh, music, sight, but also smell, um, and how that all kind of combines to engage that person while they are there, but then also want have them wanting to return and wanting to come back. Oh, that's a good question. And I would say um, merchandising has a huge role in that in that last part, right? Um, this idea of, uh, and actually, um, the reflecting on your experience, memories of your experience might be tied to, I would say, music, especially, right? You kind of have these songs that remind you of going to, to certain places. But um, in terms of nostalgia, I can't think of many parks in the world. Um, there are a couple but not as many um, as you might think that really play on that. And I would say um, Universal doesn't do that as much, right? I mean, they tend to be at least a stereotype maybe or the perception that some fans have is they're the cutting edge, right? Um, and the and not that Disney doesn't create cutting edge attractions. Certainly that's what Rise of the Resistance is. But, you know, Peter Pan's flight, right? This is a, a very important when you're talking about the history of attractions. You know, it's 90 seconds long. Um, frankly, it's, you know, from the 50s in, in Disneyland. It's from the 70s at Magic Kingdom. It's old, in other words. Mm -hmm. um, it's It by no means has the most updated technology. And yet it is always one of the most crowded weights of of every disney park i've ever been to i mean when you think about it it's just crazy how long we are willing to wait for this 90 second ride so what is the the reason behind that it's absolutely it's that nostalgia it's this linkage to your childhood or linkage to your past depending on when you first you know made that that visit um it you know connects to probably an intellectual property that you might have seen that movie maybe you saw peter pan when you were 10 or something like that and so Disney, I think, constantly plays on that. And it's actually kind of interesting. And uh, I don't think every fan would necessarily agree with me. But I absolutely believe that's what they did when they replaced the uh, Maelstrom attraction in Norway with Frozen. Um, I think some adult Disney fans were not huge 
uh, fans, I should not fans, huge fans of um, that replacement, but that's absolutely what's happening there, right? Because in 10 years, the people who grow up with Frozen, that's their movie, right? That's their Peter Pan. That's their Snow White. And um, part of the part of the real positive with Disney um, and their business models, they keep producing those intellectual properties, right? That are going to be a really culturally important to, to a lot of people. And so um, Frozen Ever After will be Peter Pan's flight in 20 years, right? It's going to be that, oh, you know, of course I want my child to go on that because I grew up with Frozen. So I think, again, um, so much of, especially the castle parks, are are about playing on that. However, I should also say, um, it's also about updating them sometimes in subtle ways. So um, Peter Pan at Disneyland, they kind of refurbished it, you know, gave it some new technology bits. Um, Magic Kingdoms, Peter Pan has a brand new queue, which is kind of interesting, kind of interactive, uh, really tells the story of Peter Pan. So it kind of adds on to the story. So um, Disney's probably some of their most successful attractions are those that are, are nostalgic, but they update them so they're not, you know, old and falling apart, I guess you'd say. And it's interesting you mentioned Peter Pan and Maelstrom. Uh, Peter Pan, is that's the first ride I go on when I go to the Magic Kingdom. And it, it is, it, I, it's because I remember you, you get in this little boat, this galleon, and then all of a sudden you're flying. And, you know, the first time I went, I think I was probably seven or eight. And you just, you're thinking, how does all of this, how am I doing this? This is so neat. And I remember the first time I rode the ET ride at Universal and thinking the same thing, um, how they use force perspective. And now, now knowing that uh, how force perspective is used, but, um, and then also Maelstrom was my favorite ride at Epcot. Um, and, but I, I've been on the, now I've been on the, the frozen ever after. And it's amazing. Um, the way that they built that story into it, the way that they, utilize the layout from Maelstrom is it's just it is fascinating um so how does Disney use the five senses to engage people um because I I think you know you mentioned music but I think a lot of people aren't aware of the the smells and the the senses that they have either um unless they have kind of come across these different companies that create candles that, you know, you can, you can take home. Main That's Street exactly USA. what I was just going to tell you. Yeah. I got, I got to say that now fans are starting to reproduce these smells. Mm -hmm. Right. So my gosh, um, you know, ET, I, I don't remember how old I was when, when ET opened, I'm thinking nine, maybe around there. And I just remember going on that and, to this day, I still remember the smell of that cue. Okay. And then, you know, now I know exactly what it is, right? But it's, it just, it, it you know, sticks with you, right? Or the, the smells, especially on Main Street, right? There was always this idea that smells are being pumped in, you know, the smell of cookies is being pumped in so that you, you know, connect it back to that. And I think scents are becoming a lot more common in rides, or at least they, you know, seem to be more common. I think of um, Flight of Passage, the Avatar ride, and how there's this kind of, um, really lovely moment where you go inside this cave and it just starts dark but then it 
bioluminescence kind of starts coming out. It turns pink and it's it's very lovely. And there's this interesting smell that, that comes out and it kind of smells like, um, I don't know, shampoo or something, but it's, it's you know, Pandoran shampoo, whatever it is. Um, it, it's got this, you know, kind of smell and it's a, you're going to remember that absolutely. And, you know, I already mentioned soundtracks, but one of the biggest things that fans love is, you know, remixing those soundtracks, um, you know, putting different soundtracks together, creating their own soundtracks um, and kind of recreating those those bits. And I would say probably the sense I never hear about it all is touch. And right now with COVID, it, it might be the mm -hmm. least used, right? So all of those kind of things, um, you know, playgrounds and interactive features are all turned off right now. So in case you're wondering, um, because of COVID. So again, something I hope will come back, but just think about when you walk into the Haunted Mansion queue and you get to press the stuff and then it mm -hmm. plays music, right? So even touch is a sense that, you know, it's using. And again, another thing that kind of elevates this medium because you certainly have sound in a video game and now you have a lot more of the kind of haptic things controllers like the uh, switch or the Wii or the connect or whatever um, using that kind of motion but it's still nothing the same as being surrounded by all of these senses in this space and so next I want to transition to another topic that uh, uh, we we've spoken a few times offline um about the research that i do um and my my line of research is looking at group behavior and rivalry and how different groups treat each other and starting and i started looking at how different groups of rival teams treat each other and how they feel toward their favorite teams and the rival teams and then transitioned into now where we are comparing um, kind of group behavior in sport with non-sport products or non-sport spaces uh, in the hopes that along the way we will be able to identify that here's where group behavior is different. Here's where maybe it's more negative in this space than it is in this space, but it's more negative in this, uh, this other space than possibly in sport and things like that. Um, and so we, I've actually been able to do a couple things with the Disney parks. Um, one being where we compared the rivalry sport fans feel um, with the rivalry Disney fans feel toward the Universal parks, um, and we found that you know the negativity is more pronounced or significantly more negative in sport than it is the theme park setting um, for a few reasons. But you know, amongst that. If you're traveling to Southern California or Orlando, you're probably, and you you don't go often, um, you know, you're more likely to go to both parks. So you you are more likely a fan of both parks. Um, but we also, more recently, um, also wrote, wrote a piece for a practitioner journal about um, some of the lessons that could be learned from the rivalry and the relationship between the Walt Disney Company and Comcast, um, which owns Universal. And so the, I want to start by asking, what have you seen as far as from the fans' perspective uh, on this rivalry or 
friendly competition, but important competition because it keeps driving both properties forward. Um, what have you seen or how have you heard people talk about the relationship between Disney and Universal Parks? Mm-hmm. Um, so I love that question since I did work at Disney and Universal on both coasts. So I you know, saw a lot of that as an employee as well um, and seeing management and the way that they discuss each other. And it's interesting because I almost feel that the media has a narrative that they are just, ah, you know, they, they really dislike each other. And, you know, they're these, you know, titans in this eternal competition. I mean, you know, the hyperbole that is occasionally in the press. And that is not actually what I see as someone who's lived in both Los Angeles and Orlando. It's it's not what I see. Um, I would say that the two companies are in competition with one another, certainly. Um, and I'd say this is more pronounced in Orlando, just because I think that the they're working with the same market. And so they, they do both want a larger market share. And so I think it is pronounced. But I would still say that the... Um, I remember when Disney's been there much longer. And so they, I remember when they, when Universal came in, they had some ad, I don't remember the exact words, but it was something like what's good for Central Florida is good for everyone. Mm -hmm. And I would say that, that if that, if those are the exact words they use, that is probably the most common narrative that I hear with fans, which is, whoa, um, Wizarding World of Harry Potter absolutely is the best land in Orlando. What is Disney going to do to beat mm-hmm. that? And then they come out with Pandora and they come out with Star Wars Galaxy's Edge. And then we have um, the new Universal Park, which has been delayed. Um, obviously, fingers crossed that it will still be built um, and that they're financially able to do that. But, oh, what's going to be in that park? That park's going to be amazing. Um, it's going to probably have Super Nintendo World and things like that, you know, other good IPs. Um, so I would say that, yeah, there is a rivalry for sure between the two companies and certainly a rivalry with fans. I think sometimes if you're a Disney fan, you may have stereotypes of Universal and Definitely, if you're a Universal fan, you have kind of a stereotype. I'm usually involved with the the audience of Magic Kingdom, for instance. You know, it's for families, it's for younger people, doesn't have as many big roller coasters or whatever. So you you sometimes get that, but it it seems pretty friendly. And I definitely concur with your paper. I read your paper on the Disney versus Comcast, um, and you mentioned this kind of idea that the fans both recognize that strong entries from the other company mean that there's going to be stronger entries from the other company. And that as long as they kind of keep, um, you know, producing these amazing experiences, it's really, really good for the fans of, of both sides. And that's certainly what I've seen. I would also say that as a sports fan, since I was young, um, I don't even think I can um, say on camera here some of the things I was told in an audience, for instance, when I used to attend Dodger baseball games and when the Giants would come down, we won't, we can't say those things out loud in, in a classroom, right? I have never heard that kind of level, I guess you would say, of, uh, of anger. I, I don't see it as an angry rivalry. But I will say, though, having lived in both places, that the rivalry does seem more pronounced in Orlando. Well, and I think the fans are what drive rivalries. 
um, because even in sport, you know, you have, especially professional sports now, where you have players uh, being traded and they're going to different markets and everything that, you know, you may have somebody who's competing and then all of a sudden the next week they're actually on the same team and they're, you know, so they're, they're working together. Um, and I, I think it is important that from, from organizations perspectives um, that they understand what, like what you said, and, and thank you for mentioning, uh, or thank you for agreeing with the paper. Um, like you said, it, it is important for organizations to understand that when rivalry is healthy, in other words, when it pushes each other forward, that's positive. Um, and that's something that, that rivalry should do. When it becomes negative is when we get into a space where we have to kind of halt the brakes and see what's going on, because ultimately that hurts everybody. Um, I mean, if you have people doing deviant things, negative things, then that's going to hurt both brands, um, not just the rival brand. It actually hurts the, we, we've done this, we've done a study on that where it actually hurts the favorite brand as well. Um, one thing that is so interesting specifically about Orlando, um, and east of the Mississippi is a lot of the students who take this class are interested in Marvel and the Marvel Cinematic Universe um, because of its its kind of recency relevancy to and um, so a lot of people ask why are there no MCU characters besides Guardians of the Galaxy and a few here or there why are there no Marvel characters at the Disney parks in Orlando and why when you go to Universal um islands of adventure is there a comic book land but is essentially a marvel themed land using all of the old uh kind of marvel i'm sure using all of the comic ip not the mcu ip um so can you tell us a little bit about that and then also kind of give your take on do you think that will change do you think at some point Disney will be able to use Marvel and MCU properties uh, or IP at their Orlando properties. Right. So, I mean, this comes from before Marvel was acquired by Disney, but they, there was a longstanding agreement that, you know, nobody could use Marvel characters if it was um, west of the Mississippi. Um, they were allowed to use it, but anything east of the Mississippi. So it's funny that that you you probably knew that but um so disney is not allowed to use this this is a, a an agreement that happened and then they acquired marvel and probably were frustrated when they you know realized the the extent of it but um mcu characters are not in in islands of adventure but there is a marvel superhero island um with a lot of the old kind of comic characters but the interesting thing is they sell lots of merchandise that is mcu and so i don't know how many students think of the irony of the fact you're certainly giving money to disney if you shop in the uh, shop with all the mcu merchandise um, and then disney has been trying to get around that that contract by doing those lesser known characters, right? So I, I do believe they've had Doctor Strange, mm -hmm. um, definitely Guardians of the Galaxy, um, of course, Big Hero 6, which most students don't even realize was Marvel, mm -hmm. um, such a phenomenal um, movie. But um, so, you know, 
I don't know if that's ever going to change. You know, I, I haven't seen um, the details of this contract. I've only heard about it, so I don't know. Um, now, Disneyland, of course, is is on that side of the Mississippi, and so they're building an Avengers campus, and they're building a Spider-Man attraction. And so um, I don't know. I don't know if it's going to change. Um, I also don't know that it matters. I think they have enough strong IP that they probably don't need those MCU characters. Um, they do already have Iron Man in Hong Kong. Um, they're building, um, I think they're building something Avengers in, in Paris. So the other parks are, are getting that. Mm -hmm. um, but, but I must imagine it's kind of weird for the the marvel fans to to see kind of the way this is broken up yeah um try explaining to a three and a five-year-old why captain america is not not at not disney um although at disney springs you can go and you can buy you know you can go to the marvel store and buy yes. captain america stuff um the another interesting point um is like you know like the in the class, we talk about the movies and everything, like how um, Hulk's story is actually told through other MCU movies where he's allowed to be used because um, it's not that Disney doesn't have the right to make a movie, but Universal would distribute that. Um, and it's interesting you bring up that, um, you know, at Islands of Adventure, you can buy MCU merchandise and that money essentially goes to Disney. So it is that, that's such an interesting part of the relationship or the rivalry to me is that um, Universal is willing to, they're making enough money or it, it is, it's beneficial enough to them that they are willing to essentially promote something that is going to their competitor. You know, when um, I remember I went to a, a Nebraska Cornhuskers football game when they were playing the Texas Longhorns where I went to undergrad and um, I took a picture with someone who had a Texas Longhorn or I'm sorry yeah a Texas Longhorns hat on uh, there's a Nebraska fan but they had cut out the Longhorn and sewed it upside down uh, for like the the horns upside down symbol and um, I just remember I took a picture with them and I remember we talk us talking about you know that those royalties are going to Texas, right? And you know it was it was all fun. The person knew that, but um, another... that just oh, I was gonna Go say um, I just because it reminded me too of um, I mean, if you don't know the history of of Marvel, it's it does seem kind of confusing. But if you look at the history of, I mean, they had kind of sold their oh, properties yeah. off piecemeal. I mean, even the most recent movie to even include Spider-Man, you have to give Sony all this money. And, and then of course, Fox, um, Fox's studio owns some of them, but now Disney owns that mm -hmm. part of the Fox studio. So it's, it's very complicated. But the other aspect I wanted to just kind of mention is that Marvel, Star Wars, um, you know, Indiana Jones, um, these are kind of interesting to me because you have companies that, you know, existed before they were acquired by Disney. Now Disney acquires them and there's been kind of a tension there, right? So there might be um, Star Wars fans who are, you know, 
worried about the stewardship mm -hmm. of these properties, for instance, from Disney. Um, and then with the MCU, I have quite a few. Um, I'm, I'm not personally a fan of the comic books themselves. I love the MCU films, but I don't know a lot about the backstory. But I have a good friend and colleague who works in comic studies. And he talks about how there is this kind of tension between Marvel fans about um, the positives. For instance, you know, now it's a almost a tentpole, right? Everybody wants to see mm -hmm. MCU. Everyone knows who Guardians of the Galaxy is. That wasn't a huge property, yeah. right? Um, and now you have people who are interested in comics more than they ever were before, as well as um, a lot more gendering, right? So it, it used to be, if you look at the statistics, that comics were generally more male, and now you've brought in a lot of female fans into the MCU, but then they're also worried about the, the way maybe Disney tells those stories and things like that. So it's kind of a interesting tension to see how fans of a property and what happens when somebody else mm -hmm. acquires that property. Well, it is as part of this class being a fandom class, we, um, we have interviewed someone who does a podcast on the MCU. Um, and me being a fan of the MCU, a newer fan of the MCU, um, not knowing a lot about the comics such as yourself. Um, you know, it is, it's interesting to kind of look at that dynamic. And, um, I remember when I, when I spoke to, uh, Sean is his name. He does the MCU podcast. He, he said, you know, the important thing is that, I mean, fandom doesn't have to, fandom should not come with asterisks or it shouldn't come with like degrees of fandom. You don't have to, you know, you don't have to have been a fan of something for 20 years to enjoy it. Um, so you know, like his stance is everyone's welcome. If you if you've seen your first movie and you like it, and now you want to see the rest. Welcome, you know. Um, but there definitely there is that kind of tension there with, um, and it, I mean, we especially see it with Star Wars because there was, you know, you have there were gaps between when the movies were made. So you have your original trilogy that will always be the best, and then you have one, two, three that will be that the will best, always be the worst. Movie, you know, <laughs> <laughs> and so. Um, you know, it's just, it's one of those areas of fandom that's just incredibly interesting. So we're, uh, we're coming up, um, toward the end of our time. So, um, there's, there's one more kind of topic and then we'll get into some more rapid fire things being as this is a fandom class. Um, but I want to get your take on how you think theme parks and entertainment is going to change, has changed amid COVID-19, and how it will, what are those lasting changes going to be from the pandemic? Right, so, and I um, was telling you right before we started that I've actually visited 16 different theme parks um, since the, the reopenings of these parks and visited all the major chains. So I think I could pretty safely speak to how things are now. Um, no doubt there's a heightened level of safety. You know, there's a lot of different rules that are there that didn't used to be wearing masks, social distancing, markers on the floor and things like that. And at least for the time being, I'm going to say that the way that we have told stories in parks has changed slightly because you're, the pre-shows, for instance, are pretty much all off. So they're, you know, the Haunted Mansion, you just walk through, you know, you don't, you don't listen to the pre-show because obviously that would be a space where people would gather. And um, 
you know, the, the interactive features in the theme parks have pretty much all been turned off. I would suspect those kind of changes will go away once, maybe once there's a vaccine, we can hope. But I also think that you're going to start seeing parks that are going to start thinking about attractions in a different way. First of all, I would be surprised if some of the notions of safety that we have now um, don't remain. At, at least the idea of just, it should be frequently sanitized. Not to say attractions aren't clean, they've always been clean, but we're at a totally different level of clean, right, than we've ever been. So I can see them thinking about that. And then the thing I would say right now that's the most up for question for me is live entertainment. So live entertainment, um, for the most part, has not completely gone away, but has been very diminished. So very few parks are offering um, a fireworks show, the type where you would go to the castle and watch the fireworks show again, because that's going to, you know, have a lot of crowds. So I really have to wonder what this is going to look like once capacities have started to raise again. And are we going to have maybe different forms of entertainment? Um, are we going to space attractions in different ways? I'm not sure, but I, I can definitely say that it seems like the parks are really looking at um, especially capacity in a in a very different way than they ever had before. Um, I would also say that if you've been to a theme park, you know that it's crowded and uh, almost claustrophobic. Currently, that is not the way it is. And I feel that most people are probably finding that that is enjoyable. Yeah. So maybe coming up with ways to permanently space cues so that they're not quite so claustrophobic. But but I don't know. I think that it's gonna be it's gonna be something else. And one random thing I mentioned in a, a paper I just wrote on safety, um, Disney is synonymous with smiles and nobody can smile right mm -hmm. now because everyone's wearing a mask. So I've really started to see um really uh hand gestures becoming kind of the 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 mo now of the disney employees um, and the universal employees i've noticed them both where it's there's a lot of waving because you don't have that normal face-to-face -face smiling kind of kind of thing so i don't know if i answered the question i don't know where this is going to take us but i feel that it's probably going to be somewhat different than maybe we conceived attractions before well no that i mean that was that was a great response and great insight to, um, you know, like, does this, does this make virtual cues more important? Does it make actually checking in on your phone and walking around more important? Um, and then like you have your time slots, um, kind of a different system of, um, uh, the, the max passes and different system of the fast passes and things like that. And and um, right now, um, the, you know, FastPass has been shut off. I mean, yeah. it, it's literally non-existent right now. The only one that still existed was for Rise of Resistance. Everything else is just a normal queue, but of course, completely spaced out every yeah. six feet. And one thing we will do in the class is um, the students will watch some of the videos to see where the spacing is, because it is interesting now to see um, where you know, where people are lined up. And, and uh, we'll also talk about, you know, some of the, the reports that people have made about how crowded parks are and everything. And some of the, the pictures that they've taken where they've held the camera up. So it looks like, you know, there's not a lot of space between people and how that's actually not the case, uh, at least it seems in most instances. Um, but you mentioned it um, in your response. So it, it, it made me think of it again. Is it different for you to go to a theme park 
as a researcher? Are you looking, whether you're trying to, can you, can you ever turn it off? Can you ever turn off the research mindset? Because that's one thing that, you know, I've talked to a lot of colleagues about is you never really turn it off. It doesn't matter what you're doing. You're always in some way thinking about what you're researching or what you're talking, teaching about, what you're writing about. Um, so do you think you have a different experience when you go to a theme park because you're looking for different things than just a general fan? Yeah, and I, I would actually argue that um, it's something I think of as like different domains of knowledge. And so fans kind of have their own kind of knowledge. Employees have their kind of knowledge. Designers have their kind of knowledge. Just scholars have a different kind of knowledge, might look at these same spaces in different ways. And um, I find that um, I'll just say yes and no. Um, yes, I look at the park differently. Um, and especially having worked in operations and I worked in attractions for just years. And so it is really hard for me to not look at and I'm saying, well, why are they only running run one train? This is just something that happened. I just went on a, a trip last week, not Disney, of course. Disney is very efficient, but I, it's hard to go to an amusement or theme park and not just look at the operational things. Um, you know, I, I think of, you know, Disney had the four keys, the safety, courtesy, show, and efficiency, which is this kind of code that all employees use. Um, even all these years later, it's been ages since I've worked at Disney. I still cannot walk around a Disney park without saying, ooh, um, I'm not sure about that. Um, is that cast member courteous? Is this good show? Um, ooh, that was really impressive. So I look at it that way. And then I would just say that once I became a scholar, I added new ways to, to look at these parks and you know ooh, this is really interesting transmedia narrative right that is the way that i look at the parks but i would also say no in that i do allow myself the these spaces and these times to just enjoy the park and and to not analyze it you know excessively when i enjoy it so can i turn it off yes but it it is almost a active thing that I have to do. Okay, I need to turn this off. I yeah. just need to enjoy this. Um, but I will say it's a lot easier to do that on some things than others. So when I went on Rise of Resistance, before I analyzed it, I just said, wow. <laughs> so it's it's still very possible. Yeah, yeah thank you. The, so a few things to finish up um, that I'll, I'd just like to ask a few rapid fire questions I've started asking with um, since we've been doing this during the pandemic and more of an interview style. Um, so just, you don't have to give any explanation. Um, you can, if you want, but you don't have to And just kind of off the top of your head or first thing that comes to mind. Um, having been to all the Disney parks, what's your favorite park? Oh man, really? <laughs> what just doing here? So I, um, I am very tempted to say D Tokyo Disney Sea, which is truly remarkable. But but my heart has got to go Disney's Animal Kingdom. I just I I I don't know what it is. I think it's because it's the first park that I ever looked at um, in in a number of ways, including as a scholar. Like I I saw the beauty, I saw the detail, um, the interesting ways that it tells stories and. I don't know. Um, and then my nostalgia pick, of course, is Disneyland because yeah. that's the park I grew up near and, and that I worked at for, for many years. Yeah. I, I have, I've not been to Tokyo Disney Sea, but I've heard just amazing things about it and that how advanced it is and that just the, you know, spared no expense, which, you know, if you're, 
the students will watch the imaginary story and they, they do a segment on kind of the, the, what was going on when Disney sea was being built, um, versus California adventure and things like that. Um, so second, um, favorite ride. Oh, Disney ride or, or any ride. Oh yeah. Favorite Disney ride. Disney ride. Okay. Um, Oh, you're just trying to kill me. Um, I would say maybe this is a weird choice because, again, I'm tempted to go with Rise of Resistance, but I think I'm going to go with Pirates of the Caribbean in Shanghai Disney because okay. it is just it's it's amazing. I mean, it's amazing. It's technologically advanced, but then it also kind of has the tug of nostalgia because it's still a Pirates of the Caribbean ride. So I I just love that. Um, well, since you mentioned, since you asked favorite, favorite ride, uh, Disney, non-Disney, do you, is it different? Um, I'm, I'm not sure if it's, I mean, no, I think my, that is probably my favorite ride. I don't know, but I, I do really love ET as my nostalgic universal pick. And then I really love all of the Harry Potter attractions. And I, you probably haven't yet gone on the Hagrid's motor, Magical no. Creatures Motorbike Coaster, which is too long of a name, <laughs> but is very good ride. That's really good because I'm also a coaster fan. Yeah. So I love coasters and I love Harry Potter and I love Universal. So that was kind of a really great attraction that kind of combines all of them. So then uh, when you're at Disney, any park, Disney Springs, whatever. Um, favorite restaurant. Um, oh, favorite restaurant. Gosh, um, I'm gonna go with be our guest. Okay. Because I have, um, I really think that I don't know again because I love Disney, but remember, animation was my first mm-hmm. Disney favorite. And so, um, Beauty and the Beast was just my absolute movie growing up. And it's pretty, we were talking about immersion and uh, senses, and you get all of those in the Be Our Guest restaurant at Magic Kingdom. How about favorite snack at a park? Oh, now that's quick. finally an easy one. Yeah. Disney cupcakes yeah. all the way. You know, I had never had the, uh, the Dole Whip until this last time I went. And, um, which is somewhat embarrassing to admit, um, but the, and once I had one, I think I had maybe three while we were there. I know I ate, (laughs) um, half of someone else's and I know I went back and got another one at least. Wow. Um, My husband gets Dole Whip pretty much every time (laughs) we go to Magic Kingdom. (laughs) Um, so what would be someone who hasn't been and has one day to go, um, what would be your advice for someone to to just kind of get the the most enjoyment they can out of a, a one day at one of the parks? Um, well, I personally would say if you only had one day at Walt Disney World, that Magic Kingdom is the park to to go to. And I think everyone must agree with me since it got you know nearly twenty one million visitors last year. But um, Magic Kingdom, Disneyland, you know, Disneyland Paris, Hong Kong, Disneyland, wherever you are, um, go to the Castle Park. The Castle Park is the quintessential Disney experience. And to me, I would go on those classic rides, Small World, Pirates of the Caribbean, Haunted Mansion. Um, I would definitely make sure that I see the parade. If there's a parade going, make sure you see the fireworks if that's going. Um, And just kind of enjoy the atmosphere. I mean, to me, just kind of look at the different themed lands 
um, just enjoy it. You might not be able to do all the attractions in one day. Um, so maybe pick it based on the maybe intellectual properties that you like or just go on those classic ones. Um, but that is where I would go. And, and that's what I think I, I would do. Try to sample a little bit of each of those major parts of the experience. Okay. And thank you so much for this. Um, we could talk for hours more about this. Maybe, um, maybe when it's safe to travel again, maybe we'll have to uh, meet up at one of the parks and have longer conversations about Absolutely. all of this. Um, but thank you so much for taking the time. And um, anyone who uh, I'll, I'll, anyone who wants to reach out or follow you on social media, or whatever, wherever. Um, where are some of the best places to to see what you're doing for the students? Um, well, I have a I'm very active on LinkedIn, so I would say the first thing I do is reach out to me on LinkedIn. I don't do Facebook or anything like that, so it's going to have to be LinkedIn. Um, or feel free to email me. So my email is carissa.baker at ucf.edu, and I'm happy to take any extra questions if anyone has them. All right. Well, thank you so much, and um, we will. Uh, we will have to continue conversations um, offline sometime. Thank you, Carissa. Thank you so much. Bye. Well, that's going to do it for another episode of the Being a Fan of Disney podcast. I'm your host, Cody Haver. I want to take this opportunity to thank everyone for joining us and listening and to say that I hope you found the information, whether content covered in class or interviews with guests, fun, informational, entertaining, and even inspiring. If you want to follow along with the class, you can do so by following me on Twitter at chaverphd. That's C-H-A-V-A-R-D-P-H-D. Or by joining the public group on Facebook, being a fan of Disney. If you want to engage with any of the guests we've had in class, their contact information is included in each of the show notes. So again, thank you for joining us. It was a great time having you. If you like what you hear, please share this out so other people can engage with the information, possibly learn more about their Disney fandom and their love for all things Disney related. With that, thank you again and have a great day.